welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Old Testament book of the minor prophet Zechariah. The book of Zechariah contains more visions and prophecies regarding Christ and the end times than all the rest of the minor prophets combined. The role of the prophet was to tell God's people what God thinks about them and what they are doing or not doing. God cares about his people and he cares about everything in their lives. The book of Zechariah reminds us of God's constant thoughts and teaches us about his plans for the future so that we have hope when we need it. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Zechariah as we look for Christ in the Old Testament. Turn in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 3, as we continue our study through the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet. Zechariah was given a series of eight visions, and the visions were meant to encourage the people of Israel who had returned from the exile. So they'd been in exile for 70 years, and then they came back in waves, and they were back in the land for some time, and they had begun rebuilding the temple, but then they stopped, and right before Zechariah started receiving these visions, um, God gave a, a word to Haggai, and Haggai said, hey, uh, you know, you, you, you're building houses for yourself, but you're not building my house. What's the deal there? And so they, they responded, they start building the temple, but we got to put ourselves in the, in, the, in the scene, in the context of what's going on here is that they're back in the land, but the land had laid desolate for 70 years. It was a mess. I mean, it was, you can imagine a city that's been abandoned and allowed to overgrow and, and buildings have been burned and destroyed and it was just a mess. So they're back in the land, but they're having a tough time. It's not going well. It's not going easy. And, um, and so, you know, God's trying to encourage them. In the first three visions, we've seen, we've seen three of the, we're talking about three of the eight visions so far. God is encouraging them, reminding them that he is going to restore them, that he is going to rebuild the city, he's going to rebuild the temple, and then he's going to continue these words to remind them. And, and we finished last time talking about the blessing or, or how precious it is, is that God says to them, I will be with you. I, 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 you will know my presence. And I think that's one of the things that, and I, and I encourage you last week to meditate on that, to think on that, to imagine that being in the presence of God, that, that he wants us to be in his presence. You know, the more I grow in my faith and say, thank you, Jesus, that Rick is growing in his faith, the more humbled I am at the thought of being in God's presence. That, that it's not just a little thing. It's a big deal. What would, it, what would it be like to literally stand in the presence of Jesus? What would that be like? What would we feel like? There's a song um, I can only imagine. You've probably heard it. It kind of, it, it kind of tries to, you know, to illustrate that and try to like, okay, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure what I would do in that case. But that's the reality that there's, there's something. We got to put ourselves in that place where we try to imagine what it would be like to stand in the presence of Jesus, to look up into the eyes 
of the one who saved us, the look in the eyes of the one who stretched out his arms and hung on a cross for us. What would it be like to look into the eyes of the Son of God? Today's text is going to give us a, a little glimpse of that, kind of help us to, to start to formulate maybe what that image might look like in our minds. And I think it's important because I think as we, as we get ourselves to a place where we imagine that, it, it will determine some, acts, some parts of our behavior, some parts of the way that we live our lives. It will drive us, it will motivate us to a type of, of behavior, and I think that's important. So let's pray, and then we'll look at a few verses. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you for your presence here today. We know, Lord God, that you are here. And while we don't always acknowledge that in our probably day-to-day -day life, and there are times in our life where we do recognize it, and we feel it, and we sense it more than others, Lord, you're never far from us. We are never far from you. You are always with us, and, and we are never outside of your presence. And Lord, I believe that you would call us to a deeper understanding of that because it will determine how we live our lives and will help us to see some of the things of life more clearly when we do that. So we give you this time, Jesus. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would move through your servant to, to communicate what you want to say to your church. And we, we humbly ask, Lord God, that you would move amongst us. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 3 of Zechariah contains the fourth of eight visions. So we'll pick it up here right in the very beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now, the he there is the angel that's been speaking to Zechariah. And uh, Joshua was one of the Jews that had come back in the exile, so after the exile. Uh, likely he was, he was born in Babylon, um, and so he's come back. He could have been possibly, he might be old enough to where he was born before the exile, probably not. If he's still alive at this point, um, it's very likely he was born in Babylon. He's one of the ones that comes back. He is the high priest. He is from the tribe of Levi, which the high priest had to be, and he was a direct descendant of Aaron, the first high priest of the nation of Israel. And so the high priest served as an intermediary between people and God. He was the, he was the one, the go-between for the people, so that when the people wanted to interact with God, the high priest was the one that would do that interaction. One of his most significant duties was on the Day of Atonement, when he, a sacrifice was made and he would carry the blood into the Holy of Holies, the place where he can only go one time a year, and he had to carry in this blood, and he would make atonement. He would, he would, in essence, cover over the sins of the people of the whole nation of Israel on this one day. Verse, continuing on to verse 1, says this. And he was standing before the angel of the Lord. We've already identified who the angel of the Lord is. It is the pre-incarnate Christ. So it is, it is a, a, a before Jesus came and was born of the Virgin Mary, he appeared to, you know, people throughout the Old Testament several different times. Here we see him uh, prominently in the book of Zechariah. 
and this, this idea of standing before. So Joshua is standing before the, before the angel of the Lord, and, and that's symbolic, and, and there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Zechariah that is symbolic of his ministry. That was what his ministry was, was to stand before the Lord. And so that's what he's doing here. He's standing before the Lord to act on behalf of the people of Israel. And that, and that, to me, was one of the things that makes some of the symbolism so rich. It is after Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended back to heaven, he became our great high priest. He's standing before the Father now, acting as an intermediary. No longer is a need for an earthly high priest. We have the great high priest, as Hebrews 4.14 tells us, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So now Jesus is the one who stands before God and, and intercedes on our behalf. He, he, he acts as that intermediary for us, that we don't, need, we don't need a high priest. We don't need a man. We don't need, we don't need anyone. We don't need a woman. We, well, we need those things, but we don't need them to act as an intermediary but before, before God. We literally can go directly to our great high priest, who is God, God the Son, and he intervenes, he intercedes, he acts as an intermediary with the Father. There's so much in that that I would love to spend the rest of the message talking about that one point, but we're moving on. And not only is Joshua there and Jesus as our great high priest, the angel of the Lord, there's a third being there. Verse 1 continuing, and standing, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So the image here, we've got Joshua standing here. He's standing before the angel of the Lord, and at Joshua's right hand is Satan to oppose him. Now, Satan is a real being. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what liberal churches say. Satan is a real being, and he is very powerful. He is smarter than any humans. He's been around for a long time, and we cannot, cannot, cannot just dismiss him. He's a real being. And he does what is being described to us here. He stands as, as, as we may present ourselves to the Lord, as we stand before the Lord in whatever way we do it, in our worship, in our prayer, in our service, Satan's standing right at the right hand saying, oh, yeah, but <laughs> if you only knew Rick the way I know Rick, accusing and accusing and accusing. Satan hates anyone created in the image of God, which would be whom? Everyone, every human that's ever been born. He hates them because they bear God's image out, even if they don't know that. Even people that hate God are bearing God's image out into this world. They're not doing it very well, but they're doing it. And he especially hates those who are serving God. If someone's seeking to serve God, he really is going to stand and accuse them. And he accuses them of all the sinful things they've done. And he knows them. You're not hiding any of your sin from him. He knows what you've done. And his desire, what he wants, is that God would reject those people he accuses. That, that as he's standing there next to Joshua, he wants God to reject Joshua. Well, not just Joshua, 
but the Jews. His goal is ultimately to thwart the work of God by getting God to reject the Jews. Well, the Bible says he's never going to do that. Jeremiah 32, 40, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them, the Jews, that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I'll put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. As Joshua's standing there before Christ, before the Messiah, before the Savior of the world, Satan stands beside him, accusing him like a prosecuting attorney. Now, here's, here's the thing. Satan is a liar. He's a liar. Bible says that when he opens his mouth, the only thing that comes out are lies. So as he's standing there beside Joshua, we can only imagine what he's saying. But here's the reality. He wouldn't actually have to lie in that circumstance. He could speak the absolute truth. Is Joshua a perfect, sinless man? No. No one is. So he could speak truth and accuse Joshua of all of the things that God already knows that Joshua's done, all of the sin in his life. Everyone, even the holiest person on earth is not perfect, is not perfectly holy, not as holy as God is. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. All means whom? All, everyone, have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. But I want you to notice how the angel of the Lord responds to him in the next verse, verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Jesus, the angel of the Lord, doesn't accuse Satan of lying. He just tells him to shut up. He says, you know, stop talking. What you're saying, it just, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. He says, the Lord chose Jerusalem. The Jerusalem means as, as a picture of an indication of the people of Israel. God chose the Jews. God's choice nullifies the accusations of the devil. That the devil can blame you, can accuse you all day long. Doesn't matter. Romans 8.33 says this. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who can, who can accuse God's elect, he says. It is God who justifies. So, so God justifies. That means he's the one who makes people right. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. If, if God, Satan can use you all day long, it doesn't matter. If you are one of God's people, you have been justified. That means you have been made right with God regardless of all of your garbage, regardless of all your junk, regardless of all the true things that Satan could say about you, before God, it doesn't matter because you believe in Jesus, because you've received the, 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 the cleansing blood over your sin, washed them all away. You are justified just as if you'd never sinned before God and so that Satan no longer has a, has a right to accuse you. Because God would look at him and say, yeah, but I, I, have, I chose Larry. I chose Eve. I chose Randy. Therefore, the Lord rebuke you. No accusation can stand. That's something to rejoice over. So they're a brand plucked from the fire. 
And that describes, that's kind of an interesting idiom. It is a, a describing the state of Jerusalem and its people. A brand is like a piece of wood that has been put into the fire, but has been pulled out of the fire before it was completely consumed. So it's been burned, but not burned up. And fire is, in this context, is referring to the exile that in Babylon. Amos 4.11 uses a similar term. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Fire is used symbolically throughout the Bible for either discipline or judgment. You see it over and over again. It's a symbol for discipline or judgment, depending on who it's being applied to. And so the brand here is a symbol of having experienced the consequences of sin. The, the people of Israel had sinned and rebelled against God. That's why they went into the exile. If they, if they had been faithful to God and obeyed him and trusted in him, then the exile wouldn't have happened. But they, they were worshiping other gods. They were putting their trust in other nations. They were doing all these things that God said, don't do that. Over and over again, he warned them, don't do that. He even told them, if you do that, I'm going to kick you out of the land. They still did it. And so God did what he said. He said, even though they've experienced these consequences, the consequences of the exile and all the, the difficulties that are associated with that, God has not allowed them to be destroyed. To this day, God has not allowed the Jews to be destroyed. Even though to this day, for the most part, they are not worshiping God the way he wants them to. Many of them don't even believe in God. And yet he won't let them be destroyed. Why? I chose Jerusalem, he said. I chose them. Doesn't mean that what they're doing is okay. Doesn't mean that God's not going to let them experience more pain and suffering. Doesn't mean any of that. But it means that he's not going to let them be destroyed. Now, none of that means that Joshua was sinless. Verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. That word filthy there doesn't come close to describing the scene here. The word filthy there, the, the, imagine the nastiest, most repulsive and disgusting thing you can to be on the human body. It is the, the, the epitome of all the nastiness you can imagine. That's what he's describing here. These garments here are something that if you were to see them or smell them or be around them, you would be repulsed by them. That's what he's describing. Joshua, the high priest, is clothed in these filthy garments. The filthy garments represent the effects of sin on our lives. Sin cannot touch you without making you filthy. It is something, you know, we can, we can you know, downplay it. We can dismiss it. We can, you know, you know, you know it, it was innocent. We can, say all these, we can say all these trite and meaningless things about it, but ultimately sin makes us filthy before God. And Joshua here represents the holiness of the people of Israel. He is the high priest, meaning he represents the holiness of the whole nation. 
you know, too often when we're talking about holiness or sin or any other thing, we compare ourselves to other people. You know, I'm not as, you know, I'm not as sinful as Chuck. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, or you know, I'll pick somebody. You, we'll pick somebody. We'll look at some. We'll find. We, we we usually won't find somebody like Chuck. We'll find somebody that's really messing up. We'll say, "Well, I'm not. I'm not like that person." Yeah, you know, at least I show up at church once in a while. Compared to most people, Joshua would probably have been one of the holiest people in the nation of Israel. And he would have represented that, anyways, even if he, you know, he didn't quite get it. Yet standing before Christ, the holiness of Christ, the holiness of the angel of the Lord, the holiness of him who would come to die for the sins of the world, for him who is the Son of God, has always been the Son of God, as he stood before him, he was filthy, even if he was the holiest man on earth at that moment. Before Christ, he was not clean. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, but we are all like an unclean thing. And that's, again, the, the, the words, the English words there fail to even approach how nasty that is. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. That means the most righteous thing you do in your life, the most holy, the most righteous thing you do compared to the holiness of God is just not that great. Not to say that you shouldn't do it, not to say that those things aren't good and important and, and right to do, just, just understand we've got to remind ourselves that our very best is, is just a speck of dust compared to God. He's so much bigger, so, so much more of everything than us. Don't make yourself, don't try to pretend that you're something awesome because you didn't swear at somebody yesterday. <laughs> Woohoo! I didn't utter a, a curse word yesterday. I'm really holy today. Look at me. It doesn't work like that. We, 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 God wants us to see ourselves as we really are. As we really are. Is that, is that Joshua standing there before them as Zacharias, it's a vision, he's seeing them and he's seeing this man who represents the holiness of the nation of Israel and he's, he's disgusting and nasty and repulsive before Christ, before the angel of the Lord. He wants us to understand that is us as we stand before God in our own righteousness. It is not a pretty thing. So how do we as unclean beings stand before God, which we sang a song, we, you know, we talk about it, you know, we talk about standing in the very presence of God, of, of, in Hebrews where he says you know, to come into the, walk, you know, to boldly approach. How do we do that when we are these unclean things? We do it by grace. That's the only way to do it, by grace and mercy. Verse four and five. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said he, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. 
And I said, that'd be Zechariah, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. What, what you're seeing there is a picture of Christ's free, undeserved, gracious forgiveness. When we put our faith in Christ, even though in our own righteousness we would look, <clears throat> we would look like Joshua, you know, we would look as if we were clothed in filthy garments. When we receive Christ, those garments are taken away. And replaced with them are the garments of salvation. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul <coughs> excuse me, shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. <clears throat> the rich robes are the righteousness of Christ. And that, this is one of those radical concepts that I think it's important for us to understand that on our own, if we approach God, we are, we are filthy. We are, we are just nasty in, in his presence. But through Christ, all of that is taken away. And we are clothed in the, in the, in the garments of salvation, in the robes of righteousness, in Christ's righteousness, so that when God looks on us, he sees the, the righteousness of Christ. And he sees that beauty and that majesty. And he sees that, that, that which draws us into his presence in, in a way that allows us, as Hebrews tells us, to, to boldly approach knowing that he will receive us. There's no reason for him to reject us. If we came in our own righteousness, there'd be every reason for him to reject us. But when we come clothed in the garments of salvation and the robes of righteousness, he has no reason not to receive us. And not just to receive us, but then to pour out his grace and mercy upon us in abundance, without hesitation, without limitation, without restriction. We see also in this the promise of a glorious future for the nation of Israel. The Messiah, their Messiah, though most of them do not acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, he will justify the nation of Israel. He will make them right before God. The angel of the Lord speaks to Joshua here in verse 6. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge, over, uh, have charge of my courts. Whew, slow down. I will give you places to walk, among these who stand here. The angel of the Lord describes three rewards to Joshua. At first he says, you will judge my house. And in this context, he means the, the people of Israel. That, that he will, that, and the word judger has the sense of rule or govern. That if, if, you, if you'll do these things, then you will govern my people, which was the role of the high priest. 
He says, they also have charge over my courts, of my courts, which has the idea of caring for the temple and its surroundings, which again was another role of the high priest, meaning that the people would be restored and that the temple would be rebuilt. And the third one, the third one's a little difficult to interpret. A lot of different opinions of what they're saying, but it might refer to a future blessing upon those who serve in this way, speaking of maybe a special role in heaven, though we can't be clear about that one. The key thing is that these are conditional rewards. That is so important for us. Every time God promises to bless us, we ought to always got to look for the conditions because sometimes there's a condition that needs to be met before that blessing is applied to us, and that's the case here. He says, if you'll walk in my ways and if you'll keep my commands. And so there was a call to faithful obedience that he, you know, for, for these rewards to be true, you have to be, you have to obey. And you have to obey in faith, not just doing the rituals, not just doing the stuff, because we know you can practice your religion without any faith at all. You know that, right? You, don't, you can just do the, the rituals. You can, do, you can show up at church. You can put money in the bag. You can sing the songs. You can, you can try to stay awake during the message. All these things you can do, you know, and, and not, have a, not have a lick of faith. Sad to say, there are churches all around us that that's the norm. They're not doing it by faith. It's just some ritual that they do. It's not right. There are rewards for faithful obedience. Now, rewards are, are the blessing of faithful obedience. They're not the reason why we obey. We don't obey because we're going to get a reward. We obey because, well, that's what we're supposed to do. That, that's what we're made for. That's how, that's how we know God's pleasure in our lives. That's how we know his smile upon our lives is when we obey in faith. We, we just, we know, okay, I believe this is what God wants me to do. I'll go ahead and do it. And, and there's a reward that comes with that. The re- reward is never the reason why we do it. It's never the purpose. It's never, it's never the motivation behind it. It should never be. <clears throat> and if it is, it means we've gotten things out of order. A friend of mine was fond of saying, God is never doing a singular work. Everything that God does is connected to something else he's doing at the same time. That while he's working in your life in something, he's also working in the lives of those people around you, through you, because of you, for you. There's always more than one thing going on at once. As we, you know, we can't look at something and say, okay, I know exactly what's happening here. Because you might know one little piece of it, but there's all this stuff around it that's connected to it through God's infinite knowledge and wisdom. God is not justifying Joshua so that he is right before God. He's doing it for more than that. One of them is it's a sign of something else that he's doing in verse 8. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. The work of justification, grace, and mercy toward Joshua and the others that are around him are a wondrous sign. They are are a symbol of something that was coming in the future. 
And the, we're told that the, the thing that's coming, or the, the, the who is, that is coming, is the my servant, the branch. My servant is used many different places throughout the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah. You, you see it often it's there in many of the messianic verses. There's in the neighborhood about 30 references to the servant in the, the Old Testament. The, the, the branch, that's less frequent. And many of them, there, there's been some correlation between them that they can point to the verses that talk about the branch and, and as a connection to one of the Gospels. You see a Gospel description of, of you, know, the, the, you know, the Gospels all have four different characteristics of the Messiah, of the Savior. Matthew is, is the king. Um, Mark is a servant. Luke is the man. And John is the son of God. And you see that as you look at these descriptions of the branch, they all connect to one of those four. So it's kind of interesting as you, as you look through it. Isaiah 11.1 1 is one of those. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. From that, the, the people of Israel recognized and acknowledged that the Messiah was going to come from, uh, he's going to be one of the descendants of David, of King David. And so um, that was one of the things they knew. Um, sadly, they missed, missed it when he showed up. And the, the idea of bringing forth has that sense of the miraculous birth of Christ. Now, as if there has not been a lot of symbolism in this chapter so far, verse 9 has got a lot more. Verse 9, For behold, the stone which I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. There's a ton in that, that verse. Stone, we see that in a number of places in the Bible. It's another reference to the Messiah. Very many places, very, very many of the messianic prophecies speak of the stone. Psalm 118.22 is one of those. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. One of the predictions about the Messiah is that many would reject him that, that the, they, they would stumble over the stone. And, and so there's the, we, we find this, the reality that Jesus, the Messiah, is either a stone that you stumble over and can crush you, or it is the foundation stone upon which you build your life. And it's faith that determines which one. If we believe, as the Bible calls us to believe, then we, then Jesus is the foundation stone, should be the foundation stone of our lives. We build our lives upon him. But if you reject him, you will stumble over him. And the Bible says that's not a good thing. Seven eyes, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting one for those that went through the Revelation study. <clears throat> Excuse me, that should sound familiar. That's in there as well. The seven eyes speaks of omniscience, that he's all-knowing, all-seeing. God, you know, as 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 God, he's everywhere present all the time. He knows everything, sees everything. It also has a, a sense of an illustration or a connection to the Holy Spirit, and that the, the Holy Spirit is described with the number seven as well. And so there's a lot of symbolism there. But basically he's saying that the Messiah, he is God. Um, the, the one that's it's a little bit less clear is it says, he will engrave its inscription. That's not exactly clear what's being said there. Um, it's been suggested that if, if 
the stone is symbolic for the Messiah, and the Messiah is Jesus, that the, inscri the inscription might be the scars of his sacrificial service, his sacrifice for sin. Could mean something else. There's other places where engraving goes on, but I like that one. You can decide which one you like to. Just, you know, make sure it comes out of the Bible somewhere, right? Never mind. I digress. He says, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That there's a, a day coming where the entire nation of Israel will repent. One day, when the entire nation of Israel will repent, repent of what? Rejecting their Messiah. And they will see him. We'll see this once we get to, to Revelation, excuse me, Revelation, Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Romans 11, 26, and 27 tells us that all Israel will be saved. All Israel. How much, is, how much of Israel is that? All of it. All of it. God has a glorious future for the nation of Israel. Today, they stand before Jesus in filthy rags. They, they have rejected their Savior. They have rejected their Messiah. They await a Messiah who has already come and offered the, the solution to their sin. This vision was given to Zechariah, promising a cleansing of them, a justification of them, justifying them toward God, making them clean before God, making them right with God. Jesus finished that work of justifying <clears throat> excuse me, all mankind on the cross. When he went to the cross, he justified not just the Jews, but he made justification possible for all of humanity. All of you Gentiles out there say hallelujah, praise God, because without that, none of us would be saved. That verse in Zechariah 12 points to the second coming of Christ. And that's not good news. While it will be good news for those that are there at that time, what will have to happen before that, the second coming of, of Jesus Christ comes after the tribulation. Seven years of the worst things that humankind has ever experienced. All of the stuff we're going through now pales in comparison to those seven years. There is nothing that any human has ever experienced at any time that even remotely approaches what those seven years are going to be like. And a great many of the Jews will not live through it. And they will die. And they will die lost in their sin. But those Jews who do experience the second coming in a way that is a bit mysterious, they will all look upon him. He will present himself to them. They will look upon him and they will receive him as their savior. And then they will experience what comes after the tribulation. Verse 10, in that day, meaning the day is the day that Jesus comes back, 
the second coming, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. That under his vine, under his fig tree are, are symbolic of prosperity and peace and blessing of abundance, that, that which is a, an apt description of the time that comes after the second coming, a period of time that we refer to as the millennium, a, a time of perfect peace on the earth where it says that those who plant gardens will, will partake of them. Nobody will come. Nobody will attack them. Nobody will take their stuff away from them. They will enjoy plenty. And that's what he's referring to here. The name Joshua is interesting. There's so much interesting symbolism in here. The name Joshua, translated into the Greek, is Jesus. So there's an interesting picture here of the different things going on. We're going to partake of communion this morning. And as we prepare to partake, we should try to picture ourselves standing before Christ. Now, this is something we should, we should do on a regular basis. Imagine standing before Christ. Jesus is our great high priest. You, you don't make him that. You don't volunteer him for that. He just is. And as our great high priest, he intervenes and intercedes on our behalf before God the Father. And he rebukes Satan as Satan accuses us. He cleanses us of all of our sins. He takes away our filthy garments and replaces them with the garments of salvation and with his robes of righteousness. And he challenges us to faithful obedience, regardless of what you're called to, regardless whether you're called to some high office, whatever that might mean in the church, or whether he's called you to some humble service someplace where nobody even notices you. Whatever it might be, he calls you to faithful service, and obedience. And he will deliver us to heaven where we can be with him forever. Knowing that ought to cause us to love him even more. Ought to cause us to, to live more for him. To, to make choices that reflect what has what the reality of the, all those things are. That if I recognize that, that Christ through his sacrifice has justified me, taken away my filthy garments, I should be less likely to put a filthy garment back on again by sinning. I should, I should strive more toward holiness for all that he's done for me. The more I recognize what a significant deal it is, how big, how immense it was that he took away all of my sin. I should, I should hesitate to sin again. And I should choose not to. Because I can. Because of him. Before we partake of communion, we should examine ourselves. Are you clothed with the righteousness of Christ? If yes, rejoice. If not, if you're still clothed with the garments, the filthy garments of your sin, then repent 
do it now. If there's some sin that just kind of clings to you, repent. Make yourself right before God. We partake of communion together because of what Jesus did for us, both collectively and individually. And he made it possible for us to have a glorious future. Pastor Randy is going to come now and lead us, yes, okay, and lead us into communion. And he's going to help us to understand just what that means to us, how to do it in a way that is worthy of what was done for us. Let's pray, and then Randy will come up. Heavenly Father, do come thanking you. Lord God, as we, as we remember, as we think upon this, that, that every one of us should be able to picture ourselves as Joshua standing there in filthy garments. But then we also, if we are, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, should be able to picture ourselves in the garments of salvation and the robes of righteousness because we have been forgiven of all of our sin. And while Satan may stand and accuse us day and night, that, that Jesus rebukes him because you have forgiven us, Jesus. You have cleansed us of all unrighteousness. And so before we partake in communion, we should do that, that searching in our own hearts If I stood before Christ right this very moment, what would I look like? And if we need to do some spiritual work right now, do it right now. There's no better time than right now. And so I pray, Lord, for all of us would humble our hearts, would open our, open our spiritual eyes to see what you would see if we stood before you and that we would respond appropriately. We do thank you for this day and this time, and we ask for your blessing upon this service. And we pray it all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this exciting journey through the book of Zechariah. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If there's anything that we can do to help you with that, don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect, and you'll find all the ways that you can connect with us there. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com slash give or text the word GIVE to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.